Welcome to our book show, our weekly book show, People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got another full show today, two interviews, and both of them are high-profile interviewees, people who've written books that really are agenda headline-setting nonfiction. And I'm going to jump straight into the first interview because we've got Professor Jonathan Janssen on the line from Cape Town. The book is As By Fire, The End of the South African University. Welcome, Professor Janssen. Hi, Stephen. It's, it's a great privilege and an honor to have you on our radio show. And the book that you have written, well, you've, written you've written many, but you, the one I'm holding in my hands, As By Fire, is an urgent, it's a very urgent and a very important book. Uh, Professor Janssen doesn't need an introduction in anywhere within South Africa, but just for my side, just a, a brief biography, Professor Janssen is a leading South African educationist. He's a commentator and author of several books. He is the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Free State, where he earned a reputation for transformation and a deep commitment to, cons- to reconciliation. He's married with two children, and he joins us from Cape Town. Professor Janssen, I ask all my interviewees the same first question. You are more than just a former Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Orange Free State, an educationist and a commentator. So... In your own words and on your own terms, introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, you know, I like to introduce myself as a teacher. It's still the identity that I am most proud of. So, you know, people always give you fancy titles and what have you. But uh, the most enjoyable uh, part of my career and also the most significant in terms of changing lives was being able to teach, you know, over several years, thousands of young high school kids in the life sciences, but also teaching them life without the sciences. <laughs> and um, and so that is important to me. Um, and, uh, you know, the other things are, of course, well-known. Uh, my family, uh, two kids, lovely daughter-in-law, about to be a grandfather of a granddaughter in Pretoria. Um, I am a Dying in the World Bluebells fan. I will not change that for anything. Um, uh, and I love every sport besides curling. I don't even know what curling is, but it seems to me to be a fairly ridiculous way to spend your time. But, uh, yeah, other than that, um, uh, here at the University of Stellenbosch, I am uh, a distinguished professor, which, according to my letter of appointment, says extinguished professor. And I feel like that some days. But <laughs> I'm just enjoying the life of the mind and writing and teaching and speaking and uh, uh, and reassuring, you know, uh, and warning, as in this book that we're talking about, uh, ordering South Africans about, you know, what is possible and what is we should be concerned about. So I'm going to use that phrase, what is possible to springboard into the next question. In an ideal world, how do you define the role of universities in society today? I think on a general level, and you can then bring it to the South African context, what is the role of a university in society? That's a very, very important question. So I don't see a university as primarily a place uh, to train uh, young people for the workplace. Of course we do that. 
But I see a university as a, as a, as a time out from, you know, the vicissitudes uh, of life, from the hardship, the hard life of working. Um, and, and it's a way of giving you time for three, four more years to think, uh, to educate yourself, to learn about others, uh, to explore the world, to, 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 to understand yourself, to, uh, learn what John Samuel calls the habits of democracy, you know. Uh, so I see university as very much what I suppose the American colleges call a broad liberal education, you know, in the best sense of that term, uh, to prepare young people. You will always learn the skills of an engineer or a physician, you know, or a teacher. But to learn how to be and how to be with others uh, uh, is are, are the kinds of things that that the university stands for. A university is also a place that uh, where you vigorously defend uh, the space against interference by the state, against dogma from the outside. Uh, it must be a place in which you can respectfully listen to somebody else's uh, other's idea and challenge it in terms that is uh, always courteous. So it's a, it's a place in which you learn, you know, much more than what you uh, learn in your discipline. And what I think happened over 2015-16 worried me greatly because I felt that some of those values of the, acad- of the academy were, were coming under threat. You haven't mentioned research, but in the book you do talk about the research universities, the the, the research function of universities. Yeah. Is that not an important function of universities in the modern world? Oh, absolutely. You, you know, when, when you ask uh, a, a vice chancellor typically what's the role of university, they would say teaching, research, and public service. I take that for granted. Okay, those uh-huh. are the things that we do. But I was talking about the broader aspects of them. So being able to inquire into the world and understand deeply, you know, the 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 uh, things like human nature, you know, governments, um, international relationship, relations, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the universe as it changes, um, uh, the climate and the cities and so on. So that, that, those are the subjects of inquiring minds, you know, and those are the kinds of things out of which we, uh, uh, on which we concentrate our energies as researchers, but also as thinkers. So, yeah, that is what the university is supposed to do, and it's part of that value system, not the specific research project, but the opening up of the mind to ask questions free of, you know, uh, uh, vested interest uh, about who we are, where we're going, uh, uh, and and whether we are alone. So those are the kinds of things that, as you said, uh, constitutes research. That's the ideal world. Now let's look yeah. at the South African context and the current crisis that is happening in mm. South African universities. For your book, As By Fire, you interviewed 11 vice chancellors of South African mm-hmm. universities. And from these interviews and from your own experience, wisdom and knowledge, mm. You've written, as I said earlier, very urgent, and I found a very disturbing account of higher education in South Africa. I feel that you do for universities what Jacques Poe and you and Jacques share the same publisher did for South African intelligence, the criminal justice system, and SARS. You both blow the lid on national institutions. You specifically with universities, and you show their very near collapse. 
uh, the book had my heart in my mouth and uh, quite nervous about the future of South African universities. Before we get to the current state of the universities, can we look at the historical relationship between South African governments, the South African government and then the South African universities until from just before the 1994 hand transformation and then since then until today and what's led up to this huge crisis? Right. So um, the South African universities have always had a troubled relationship with, with, with the state, you know. Uh, as you said, under the apartheid years, the state felt it should control universities. In other words, they were, since they were only there to serve as functionaries of, of you know, of, of, of the state. And so you produce the dominies and the teachers and the civil servants and the nurses and so on, and, and that's your job. And you stay out of politics and you... Uh, you know, confine yourself to the disciplines. Now, of course, that's a ridiculous idea uh, anywhere in the world, but it was part very much of that narrow and, and very oppressive thinking around what universities are for. Now, it's also true that even during that period, different groups of universities had different understandings of themselves. The English universities prided themselves on what they called institutional autonomy and academic freedom, the Afrikaans universities were pretty much the, you know, his master's voice. And the historically black universities, as you know, were pretty much created simply to, uh, you know, provide a segregated space for black students to, uh, again, uh, learn their place in the party society. Now, come 1994, new country, new democracy, and the values of academic freedom, institutional autonomy, come under threat again, this time from a democratically elected government, and, and which believes that the universities are there to serve the new state, you know. And as a friend of my social historian always says, there's very little difference between white nationalists and black nationalists, you know. They're both nationalists, and they want their, their own, uh, uh, you know, uh, fingers in the institutional pies. Uh, as far as universities are concerned. So uh, one of the things we do as vice chancellors is to constantly push back against uh, government uh, interfering with the business of the university, both from the point of view of admissions, from the point of view of curricula, from the point of view of, you know, uh, funding and so on and so forth. So um, one of the threats that I raise in the book is uh, a threat that happens throughout post-colonial Africa, is that the state then begins to see universities, the, the post-colonial state, as places in which to exercise their politics and in which to, uh, you know, uh, advance their own interests. And that is one of the things that you, uh, that is happening in South Africa through a whole range of laws that taken together begin to uh, threaten the autonomy of institutions. That's really the interference of the government into the right. universities. You also remember you also mentioned two other pillars of the crisis: underfunding, yes. underfunding, and instability. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you're going to underfund your universities, you know, then over a period of time, they lose their critical edge to do their core functions, which uh, we call teaching research and, and public duty. Uh, so if a class has 500 students in psychology one because they don't have a budget uh, for 
for more lecturers, it's the beginning of the end. You know, and Belinda Bazzoli, um, who is the DA Shadow Minister for Higher Education, uh, forgetting her political uh, party, she wrote a really, really uh, disturbing piece from contrasting a, uh, I think it was Walter Sassoon University and the University of Pretoria. The one is an absolute mess, mismanaged, underfunded, cockroach-infested a place where our children, our young people are supposed to pursue higher learning. And then you go over to the pristine, well-organized, you know, University of Pretoria. And and so both of those universities eventually come under, are, are currently under threat, you know, of uh, reductions in government uh, funding. And that's extremely difficult to sustain. And so... Um, we 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 up against it with the funding uh, situation, especially when you have, when we can't even meet. As you know, we were short by fifty billion in the in the last budget. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, students want money for themselves to study. You know, and that's also caused enormous uh, 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 strain on the on the budget for education as a whole. Then there's the issue of chronic instability. And, you know, I just have a researcher right now uh, who's counting up the number of incidents of disruptions on campuses since they opened in middle to late January in some places. And it is amazing to me that even as we speak right now, there are several campuses in which there's tear gas, there's, uh, you know, shutting down of classes, there's uh, contestations in management. Now, that's fine if it happens once a year, but when it happens, off and on, you know, uh, over the past three years, and very intensely, you know, students no longer just show up and, and march. You know, they they burn things, they threaten people, they tear down artworks. They, when you have that all the time, two things happen to your system. First, the middle class students, that is those who can afford it, they leave. And secondly, your top professors leave. So what are you left with? Uh, students who are generally poor, uh, who have no other options, and uh, lecturers without good quality PhDs or any PhD at all were basically there to teach, you know. Then you lose the status of your top 10 universities as serious research institutions. And when that happens, we become like our brother and sister institutions in uh, the rest of post-colonial Africa. And my whole point was that South Africa must stop thinking that it is exceptional, that is, that its point of reference uh, 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 is the Oxbridge system as opposed to the post-colonial system in, in Africa. And those three things, the instability, the underfunding, and the interference, are things that I predict will eventually lead to the demise of all our universities. And how far down that road are we? Well, as I said, you know, read, read the papers every day, and particularly the collation of papers put out by, under the, the title um, Daily Higher Education News, and you'll see accounts of most of our universities uh, every day, and are they slipping on the issues of instability and underfunding all the time. And so we've already lost the bottom 10 of our universities, so let's not fool ourselves, and I won't mention names like here, but I mean, there's the bottom 10 are basically, you know, uh, and sadly, holding patterns for students who have nowhere else to go. That doesn't mean they don't get diplomas and certificates, but it simply means they're not getting the quality of education that the students in the upper 10 universities get. So that's already lost. 
And what you're finding right now is incredible strain on your top universities. You take UCT, for example, which is, in my view, our top university. It has suffered incredible body blows, you know, over the past uh, two and a half years. And, and, I'm under, and, and, and it loses a lot of stuff. It has lost more top academic staff in the past two and a half years than it's lost, uh, I think, in the past 10 years, you know. And, and that means that you have really talented professors who lose into other countries and to other industries. Now, you know, a university is a vulnerable institution. In other words, if you, if you lose your top people, even just 10% of your top people, you're gone. Okay, it, it, it's not a factory. It's not a place in, in which everybody has equal share in the in the production of knowledge. You really depend on a small handful, and that university is under ceaseless pressure, you know, to become something else. And the something else is uh, a populist institution that bends to a narrow chauvinistic black African nationalism, and that in the name of transformation begins to give up on what I think are the really, really important things that count in the measure of a global Now that you've shared the the dark vision, how reversible is the situation? What can be done to restore our our universities to a a status of, say, glory or just a top 10 university or a university that will be taken seriously internationally? And do you think that the changes in South Africa's president will have any influence on the university, the higher education situation? Yeah, I think I think you've sort of listed what I think is the most important uh, uh, source of hope, and that is if the Ramaphosa government, okay, stops lying to the students like his predecessor and promising them free education across the board with hidden footnotes, you know, that we can't afford it, um, then I think we can have a deal. In other words, the, the new government has to call together the leaders of the different student bodies and say, we will fund, and by the way, I believe this is possible in the fiscal we will fund uh, poor students who are talented and who can succeed in our education. That will be done, okay? What we will not do, and this must be said loud and clear, is to fund middle class and wealthy students, okay? They must pay. And they can pay against a sliding scale of uh, based on uh, you know, the income uh, uh, from their parents, but they are not getting a free ride. And by the way, that's how it's going to be. And in the meantime, uh, any student who, despite these uh, attempts, you know, to fund the poor and to sustain our institution, then decides that they have some right to destroy this institution, that, that student must, uh, or that group of students, must not be allowed to continue in our education. They thugs. And I think that clarity hasn't been coming forth from government. I don't know if they're scared of the students. I don't know if they, you know, uh, we, we know, for example, certainly at places like this, there were students who were in national intelligence who were part of the chaos, you know. So you've got to take that kind of politics out of our education and put in a progressive politics, you know, which is focused on making sure, on the one hand, that poor students can study without the stress of, of financial concerns, and at the same time that all students contribute, okay, uh, financially and intellectually to making sure we have great universities. So, unfortunately, much of the focus has been on vice chancellors, as if the 26 public university vice chancellors have enormous powers, both to summons money from somewhere, uh, I don't know where, 
and also to keep the peace. You know, the root of this problem lies in the political system uh, that uh, plays a cost a very long shadow over the day-to-day uh, 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 events on campuses. How valid is the call for free education, free tertiary education? We, we're interviewing here on HIFM Professor Jonathan Janssen. His book is As by Fire, the end of the South African University. It's published by Tafelbach. It's a very urgent and also a very disturbing read, but I think with a community like ours listening to HIFM, we all want our children to go to university. So it's in our best interest to know what the state of universities is, what, what currently is happening. Um, Professor Janssen, I want to ask you, how valid is the call for free edu- tertiary education? I've seen studies reported, especially in The Economist magazine, that the benefits of primary and secondary education accrue to society as a whole, whereas the benefits of a tertiary education accrue much more to the individual who has the degree rather than to all of society. Is the call for free education valid? And look, first of all, let's be, again, we need some honesty in these debates on the economics of education. First of all, education is never free. Somebody pays. Now, whether it's the taxpayer paying more, okay, and as several people have said about uh, Minister Kikawa's budget, it's, you know, it's robbing Paul to pay Paul, you know, you're mm-hmm. taking from the poor, and you're charging them more, you know, and things like that, in order to to pay for for free, uh, free higher education. Um so somebody's always going to pay. Let's be under no illusion about that. Secondly, to the extent that you need to cover the tuition and accommodation of students who are poor but are talented, that is possible. With, you know, the numbers make that possible, okay? So that can be done. Uh, what is not possible is to fund, you know, over a million students in uh, in higher education. Uh, there is no money for that. Uh, and... And if that call persists, we all go down because, you know, you can, you know, it takes about 100 years to build up a really good university, but it takes three months to destroy it, okay? So um, I'm under no illusion that we need to politically deal with the free higher education in two ways. One is to say it is possible for the poor, that's realistic. It is not realistic for the whole system. Uh-huh. It's a it's a valid argument that you're making, and uh, if you th- if the numbers do allow for the poor to get free Absolutely. education and accommodation as a country, that becomes our priority, but not at the expense of of of, of the whole university sector within tertiary education. I just want to point out that in your book, what comes across is that the vast chancellor position is most probably one of the most demanding jobs in society. He's at the centre. They are sitting, the vice chancellors are sitting at the center of a network of competing constituencies and stakeholders. I was yeah. going to ask you to expand the position, but we're running out of time, and I've got other very, very uh, urgent questions. But to someone like you, who was a vice chancellor, and to all your colleagues who currently are in that position, society as a whole has to recognize the job that they're doing with very limited power and very limited budgets and huge interference from the state and from students and from faculties. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a job that 
until I read the book, I didn't fully appreciate the role that, 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 that the vice chancellor has. But I want to move on to the next question, the next, a few more questions. The student, but that is just for me an observation that I've got a newfound respect for mm. people like you. And I think our listeners need to know that it's a tough job and it's very little thanks. But it has to be, we have to express our, our, our gratitude for the people who do hold that position. The student protests over the past few years saw students hijacking the narrative and dominating the media coverage with the slick manipulation of social media. Universities were always responding from a backfoot position. You describe what is truly an asymmetrical war. And I do feel that after having read the book and having read those parts on the social media aspect, that we should be giving our vice chancellors 20 hours of media play to explain how unfair the coverage of the, 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 the upheaval on universities has been. I'm not going to give you 24 hours. I'm going to give you two minutes. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I mean, the, the you know, uh, people think of a vice-chancellor as the CEO of a major corporation. <laughs> that would be nice, but it's not the case. You're really running a public institution in which a governing body, the council, determines what you can spend and how much and whether there's any money. And if you want to run a cleanship, if you want to run a university that doesn't have problems with the internal or external auditors, if you want to run a university that accounts to, to, to its main fund of the state for how it spends this money, then you cannot at the same time ask that vice-chancellor to do things that are beyond the funding capacity of the university. You will break that university down. And so I think it's a job that's poorly understood. The university vice-chancellor is not the municipal manager, you know, whose house and car you can burn down if you don't like something. Uh, it is a leader in our education. So I think, uh, you know, part of what this is about is where you started this interview is, is to make the public aware what are the purposes of our education, what are the role players in our education, what can they and can't they do, and what is the role of government in it all. Thank you, thank you. I've, I've got a few more questions, but we're going to run out of time. Your chapter on decolonization was yes. very comforting for me because after all those videos play, that went viral on African science and uh, decolonization went you know, public, I became very scared of the nature of education that my own children would experience in a decolonized university. But you actually gave the topic a very quick uh, treatment and you, you really did put my mind to rest quite, a, quite substantially. Just can you just discuss your thoughts on decolonization for our last, I'm sorry, it's our last minute. Yeah. Look, the, the, the problem is, you know, when, when young people come up with a term that they don't understand, they don't understand its history, they don't understand its politics, but it becomes a handy political hammer, you know, for, for all kinds of problems. Then you come up with something like decolonization in the context of a constitutional democracy in which the last many years of our country was not dominated by colonialism, it was dominated by apartheid and for the past 21 years by a democratic state, Okay. And so to reduce and reflect all of our problems, for example, with the curriculum as one of, you know, the remnants of colonial rule is, is quite ridiculous. And so um, I think, in a nutshell, think of the decolonial language and politics as, as flag-waving. I don't think it means anything. It won't change much. 
and and that's partly because I think it is ill-informed. Thank you. Professor Janssen, it's been an absolute privilege and an, an honor to have you on the show, share your thoughts about the South African universities. The book is As by Fire, published by Tafelberg, The End of the South African University. I think our community listening to Chai FM, highly educated community, we all want our children and our grandchildren to go to universities. Read the book and then see how... Professor Janssen, with a lifetime of experience, knowledge, and wisdom, has distilled the crisis that is affecting our universities. And hopefully, a new government that's just been one, that's one week old can also try sway things so that our universities of higher education will maintain their reputation and their vital role in society. Professor, thank you. Thank you, Stephen.